I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And welcome to Pilot Club 68. Yes, Saturday morning edition. Saturday morning. We've been a bit irregular recently, haven't we? We have, we have. Like lifetime tables. And I quite like the Saturday morning kind of vibe, though. Yeah, life has happened. Life has... (laughs) We've had to work around. Yeah, yeah. We've had to make do. Yeah, yeah. But we keep pumping out this free content. Exactly. For our fans. (laughs) Shout out. To all the fans who are listening. (laughs) I, I, I actually have no real sense... How many people are listening? They're out there. The silent majority, Billy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. So so, so today's first series is 1899. Yeah. Um, And it's a series from Yantier Frisha and Baran Bo Oda. Ooh. I'm not sure I pronounced that. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly, but (laughs) it's actually not problematic because they're German and I'm German. Oh, okay. So this is just a German... Ah. Someone with German, German heritage, yeah, ge- yeah, someone with German heritage mispronouncing yeah. German stuff. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's embarrassing for you, but, but not politically but not, problematic. But not problematic, <laughs> exactly. Um, these are the two... Das is good, Billy. Das is good. These are the two guys. Uh, one's a, one's a, uh, uh, a brilliant woman. Ah, okay. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I couldn't tell the gender from the names. Oh, these yeah. are the two brilliant people. Yes. Brilliant German people. Yes. Um... Behind the series Dark. Yes, Dark. Which I've only seen a couple of episodes yeah. of. Um, that's been on my watch list for a while, yeah. actually. Netflix to... sleeper hit. Yeah. yeah. German language series, sci-fi, yeah. sort of slash horror, mm. slash Cold War type series that became a huge hit on the Netflix platform and was really um, what a lot of people were citing as an example of how Netflix can can enrich our cultural life by bringing us, by platforming these, yeah. uh, these you know... Um, Foreign language foreign, series foreign and films. Series. Um, yeah. I remember the big the big pull thing for Dark was the time travel narrative. Yes, an elaborate yes. time travel narrative. And I remember with Dark, my, my feeling was this looks really interesting, but it also looks like a lot of hard work cognitively. <laughs> like, hard yakka. Have you seen like on <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like the enormous maps, like time maps that people draw of Dark yes. to kind of bring it all together? Yes. Like it's, it's like these incredible schemas yes. just to kind of bring the plot, which yeah. is intriguing. But yeah, like, as someone who doesn't necessarily follow narrative that well at the best of times, I think time travel is something that I often struggle with. Yeah, and yeah. especially like time travel episode to episode yeah. like it's a lot so i remember i liked i liked the idea of dark but i was like mm. i don't think this is casual viewing mm. i think this is mm. so it feels a bit yeah. like 1899 is cut from yeah. the same cloth right yeah it's, well it reminds me actually a little bit of tenant yeah christopher, christopher absolutely Nolan, yeah uh, film which yeah. i found absolutely perplexing and had no idea what was going on i have such i mean <laughs> as, as i'm sure you do too i've such visceral memories of seeing tenant yes. remember we saw it first post uh first well, pa- uh, pandemic film peri pandemic yeah, yeah. yeah. so we saw it in just very evocative circumstances. So it was me, Andrew, Kyle, and Chof, a friend of ours, and we actually drove up to the Blue Mountains that day, mm. snow chasing. Mm, so yeah. for those who aren't in Sydney, the Blue Mountains is a small mountain range near Sydney, and every now and then, rarely, it snows very heavily. Yeah. So we drove up to look at the snow. Little do we know that every other Sydney sider had the same idea as us. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> but, but that bumper was, to bumper traffic for six hours. But that was surreal in a different <laughs> way, right? Just sitting in traffic yeah. with snow yeah. just drifting down. Yeah. But then that night we came back to Sydney and saw Tenet in, yeah. a, in a mall. Yeah. And I remember just... That was the first time I'd been in a big public space yes. and in a cinema. With masks on. So that, just that yeah. feel... Cause that that, that feel, whole day was very much 2020 vibes. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, how long... It's a bit of a tangent, but how long ago does 2020 seem now? Like, yeah. I think 2018 seems yeah. more recent. Yeah. Remember another pandemic habit we had was there was a time where we would go, you know, on Wednesday or Thursday nights to Mandarin Centre at Chatswood and see a movie, like, in the midst of the pandemic. Yes. So we saw lockdown. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. We were basically the only people in the cinemas. Yeah. Yeah. And often, where did, where did we... I mean, we, we, had, we went and had the... Uh, the what was the steak? The lab. The, the lab. That's when I got into lab. <laughs> the raw bar. Because like, I've been all about the raw bar the last couple of years. Remember the seats were too comfortable as well. Yes. For me, I don't like seats that yes. are too comfortable. And we also once went to that uh, that theatre in the in the outer west or in Auburn. Yes. That later was a was flagged as uh, a COVID know, hotspot. Uh, as a hotspot. Because I, I couldn't find the right balance. Yeah. We saw that Santa Claus film we saw with the Mel, Mel Gibson. Gibson Santa Claus film, or rather, I did. Yeah. And you spent the, the rest of the film pacing up and down the uh, the corridor. Well, the issue was the seat, the seat, <laughs> the seats were too comfortable, right? So I can't do with seats that are too comfortable. I, I don't get you in chairs. But then I asked you in chairs. It's very perplexing. I asked the people at the front counter. <laughs> You're Goldilocks when it comes to chairs. I, I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting right now on a on a kind of chair that has taken me ages to find. Um, but remember, I asked the cinema staff for a regular chair. 
and they gave it to me and that was too hard <laughs> so I just I, I couldn't find the middle ground so I said to them can I go for a walk I'm going to go for a walk outside and come back and see my mate yeah. and when he finishes now like oh yeah. Because it's late at night, if you leave, you can't come back. The cinema's locked. So I just ended up pacing like a madman up and down the foyer while all these like cinema employees were giving me the side eye. Just like, what is this guy it was, doing? It was strange. Just walking up and down. It was strange. You would have set off alarm bells for sure. Yeah. So I was at, I was at, they're like, is this guy going to, like, especially in the, in the States. Is this guy going to, probably would have been taken into custody. Is this guy going to rob the cinema? It reminds me of our experience when we saw um, Smile a couple of weeks back. Yes. Isn't it like just like the kind of a posse of four people walked in halfway, yeah, through, halfway through trench coat mafia, yeah, sat yeah, down duffel with purpose, bags. Yeah, in the States. <laughs> Alarming. I would have been out of that cinema immediately. So we've got lots of tangents, but I think that's true to the series. So, so bringing it back to the series, um, the, the premise of the series is kind of actually not that hard to describe concisely, mm. even though it seems like it's going to spiral out. It's basically about two ships that mm. are making a transatlantic voyage. So the first is a ship, the Kerberos, mm. and that's where all the action takes place. And it's populated by a whole lot of people making mm. the transatlantic voyage for cast different of, reasons. Cast of lovable rogues. Yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> well, let's come back to the... Yeah, we'll come back to the characterization in a bit. Um, but hovering in the background is another ship called the Prometheus mm, from ghost the ship. ghost ship, Sea Evil. <laughs> One of my all-time favourite um, movie catchphrases. Back in the 90s, remember there was that... that, that period of haunted ship yes like haunted so there was haunted everything haunted really. everything but especially so yeah. there was there was ghost ship sea evil <laughs> and then there was deep rising full scream ahead <laughs> so yeah it, it, it's it's definitely the tradition of ghost ship yeah, and yeah. deep rising yeah um ships had their moment in the 90s they hit yep well, speed two yep absolutely absolutely <laughs> cruise control um was it when was it when pop culture discovered cruising i wonder i wonder if it <laughs> was, was that the love boat yeah that was love boat. i wonder if it was well I wonder if it's a moment in the 90s where horror is getting more porous, more digital, yeah. so people have to fall back on self-contained spaces, yeah. and ships do that pretty easily. But in this case, the second ship is called the Prometheus, and it's owned by the same company as the Kerberos, and it's, it's, it vanished mysteriously mm. a mm. year ago. I can't remember. Four what, months. Four months ago. Four months. And as the Kerberos is making its voyage to New York, mm. they receive a signal from mm. what appears to be the Prometheus mm. and approach it. And Only disclosing its location, but nothing more. Exactly. Mm. Um, to the point coordinates. Where, exactly. Mm. And it doesn't seem to have the right kind of radar equipment to do that. There's some scientific anomaly to mm. it or something. Mm. And it ends with them boarding the Prometheus, and that's basically the setup. So, yeah. yeah. Is there is there a better topos in any in any sort of horror or thriller, mm. you know, genre than than the missing? What's it? Missing. You know, the missing ship, the missing spaceship. Absolutely. So it suddenly reoccurs and it's vacant. Yep. You know, Event Horizon, I think, had one of the creepiest horror premises of of all. You know, that, that mid-90s horror movie where the spaceship returned, but with none of their crew present. I, I still think, someone asked yeah. me the other day, what's the scariest film you've ever seen? Like, relative to when you watched it and... I think that mm. may be it for me. I mean, scariest premise. Do you think the film actually executed the premise? I don't know. No, but I think relative to my sensitivity to horror at the yeah, time yeah. and my particular pressure points, <laughs> yeah, that film it really it has really, always it really hit all the trigger points. It hit all one. the trigger points for me. Um, these are my eyes. Remember that thing? <laughs> yes. The guys holding the eyes. These are my eyes. I remember. I think until that point, I'd never seen hardcore eye violence, and I remember like what the actual like. I remember just yeah. that that image is seared into my head. Yeah, so it's like the what happened here, yeah, kind of. And to be fair, this feels like it could be an outer space series, right? Like mm. the palette is so dim, mm. the ocean is so monotonous. Mm. The ship's called the Prometheus. Mm. It feels like could it could easily mm. be set in outer yeah. space, or, yeah, well, the, the other, or there is some kind of outer space connection in there. Yeah, well, the, I guess the other the other you know feels like Earth text is alien. Yeah, you know, absolutely anonymous distress signal sent by a mm. spaceship. You know. An, in a quite remote remote location, the actual ship goes to well, hence, to locate hence, them, and hence yeah. Prometheus. Yeah, so true, like it, 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 that feels true. kind of deliberate. There's a lot of Greek um, mythological references yeah. to this, aren't there? Mm. Um, Prometheus, yep. and, and obviously the beginning that that sort of montage of mm. kind of reminiscent of Ozymandias. Yeah, yeah. What what else? Hold <laughs> my works, ye mighty in despair. Sure, sure. <laughs> what else apart from those two? Many, 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 many others. <laughs> so many, too numerous um, to mention. Something I wondered too was like. Because it's something that's interesting about the show is that, that that's really all it is. It's a ship heading to a distress signal. Mm. And yet all the imagery around the show, the posters and the advertisements, have this kind of cryptic, geometrical, tricky, mm. 
Christopher mm. Nolan-esque imagery, like mm. people falling into voids, wormholes. Yeah. So e- weird sort of Egyptology. Yeah, exactly. Iconography. Yeah. Pyramids, pyramids. and triangles and so stuff scarab beetles. Yeah, so stuff that doesn't turn up at all in the pilot. Mm. So it's interesting. I guess part of what's interesting about the pilot is contemplating where it'll go next. Contemplating what genre it is. And what genre it will be, yeah. <laughs> is it horror? Is it thriller? Is it sci-fi? Mm. Is it a period piece? Mm. Is it all of the above? Mm. I suspect it's probably all of the above. I wonder too, just I guess as a side note, is there going to be something, you know, cli-fi here, like climate fiction? So mm. like it it reminded me a bit of Waterworld. It's like a... Okay. In so far as... It'd be like a village type twist. Well... It's actually 2099. Well, it's funny. <laughs> in so far as... How can I put it? They're making this voyage right across the ocean, mm. but there's such a sense of the doldrums mm. and there's such a sense of them being in some kind of limbo. Mm. And there's there's almost a sense that land as they once knew it doesn't exist anymore or mm. where they've come from and where they're going feels so notional. Mm. And, so, and there's no real sense of progress. And this is something I'll come back to in a bit. I think it is quite turgid in some ways as mm. a series. Mm. And the closer they get to the Prometheus, the more, mm. the less liquid the water feels. Mm. Like, I think they comment when they get there that it just looks like solid ground mm. so or it's become the new solid mm. ground. It's like the dramatic momentum like the ship itself is kind of becalmed. Yeah, well, exactly, mm. exactly. So kind of, I wonder if, you know, like, I guess cli-fi, like climate fiction, it doesn't, doesn't have to be literally about climate change. And in this case, it, it feels like, we're in a world where there is notionally land. We're travelling from and land and to land, but it feels like it doesn't exist anymore or that when they get there, it won't exist anymore. Like something mm. I wondered just practically is, will the series ever touch land? Mm. Will, it, will it stay? Will it, will it touch land in a real, that, in a naturalistic way? Will it stay? I think that's one of the strengths yep. of this of this pilot. The mm. fact that there's no... No context. No real context. There's no, no real flashbacks or flash forwards. No. Um, there's, you, you don't see land. No. You don't see characters' backstories. No. It, nothing takes you outside of that ship, which mm. is, I think, a, a strong point. I, um, I, for all, I think there are some deficiencies here, especially in terms of the acting. Mm. The, the continuity of time and place is very effective. That's really good. I mean, and I agree. Look, I mean, one thing you would say about this, I would say, is that it's quite leaden. Like, in yeah. its appearance, it's very, it's a mm. very, like, literally, it looks like metal, the palette. It's yeah. hard to see. At times, and the characterization mm. is uniformly leaden. I mean, to the point where I'm not even sure it's going for naturalistic characterization, mm. which can make it a bit of a drag at times. But as you said, the flip side is because it is all so bounded, there is it does have a kind of hypnotic power of its own. Mm. And you can see how you might watch one episode, two episode, and almost enter a kind of trance state, yes, or a fugue state. That's watching how I, it. Yeah, that's how I felt about Dark. Yeah, Dark was very slow, very meditative. Mm. Um, the characters were pretty opaque mm. um, and I often found myself drifting off to sleep during it. Yep. In fact, there were many, many times mm. when I was kind of becalmed into mm. into this sort of soporific state mm. and similarly here. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's not, not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's like hypnotic. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that does hold this series back is the quality of the acting. There's a there's a real wooden well, quality. There's you know, a sort of you know masterpiece dinner. There's a dinner theater we know, I think, quality to this, where people you know twirling their yeah, their waxed yeah. mustaches. And I think two things, but well, the first thing I'd say is it's it's dubbed right. Yeah, I think it's dubbed. It's, it's a multilingual show, yeah. but obviously some characters are dubbed, some are not, or perhaps they yeah. all are. It's yeah, the, my, my impression yeah. was that they were basically all dubbed. Like it sounds like that, and that always takes me out of it right away. The second thing I would say to that is, yeah, like the, the, the acting is so stilted mm. that you wonder whether that will serve a purpose later on insofar mm. as everything we're seeing will turn out to be some kind of artifice mm. or some mm. kind of fabrication or simulation. Yeah. But it's not even mannered. No. Wooden, though. It's just bad. It's just wooden. bad. <laughs> it's um, really bad. Or just, again, it may just be dubbing. Like, there's yeah, maybe it's the dubbing. There's nothing it that takes me out of I cannot stand dubbing. Like it just the way which it, I think it's because it, it really doesn't look realistic. Yeah. Often the voices don't match, but also dubbing seems to take out ambient noise as yeah. well. So just, it's like you're watching the film on two different sound planes. Mm. This brings me to just a, maybe a bit of another concern I have, which is, I mean, obviously the whole series is going to be about the twists, mm. but everything that you see feels like it's so conspicuously setting up twists. Yeah. That it's almost like is the subject of the show just going to become its own narrative machinery? Yeah, it's a bit solipsistic in that sense. Like you yeah. want you want a show that really immerses you, I think, 
and then gets twisty. Mm, mm. You want to enjoy the ride, not just the the U turns. And the, yeah, exactly. And there's not a lot of it. There's not much of a sense of play, mm. you know, for a show that is all about its own twistiness. I don't know. Just, I just feel like mm. if the twist is the only thing you're waiting for mm. and the only thing that you're there for, can it ever really satisfy? Yeah. You? Like as you said, like the journey. I'm not sure the journey is actually the point here. No, that's right. And I think if yeah, I think this is a, a common criticism of this new type of you know hybrid show mm. where you're not sure what genre it is. It's it's melding all these ones mm. into a blender. Um, you, you're more sort of fascinated by the narrative gymnastics mm. of it than you are by you know the the narrative hooks that are provided by character identification. Mm. Yeah, um, or atmosphere. And, yeah, atmosphere and which, also, you know, thematic depth. Which is tricky when it's so slow. Like, so mm. I feel ambivalent about the slowness because obviously, as you said, it's hypnotic. But when mm. the whole show is about its own narrative ingenuity, when it's this slow, it uh, I don't know, just there's something about it that didn't quite congeal for me as well. And as you said, like, the characters are kind of nothing. Yeah. They're just... Yeah. They're just well, they're, they're types. Yeah, they're types. types. Yeah. They're like archetypes. And it, it reminded me somewhat of that. There's your Agatha Christie country house yeah, murder totally. mystery, you know, where there's, a, there's the, uh, you know, the fake priest and yep. the, you know, the wealthy buffoon with yep. the dark secret. It's, and like, it's like Professor Plum. Yes, Professor <laughs> Plum. Colonel Mustard. <laughs> yeah, the, the captain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's just archetypes. There's not, mm. there's not much depth or interest mm. to any of the, the characters mm. individually. So yeah, I felt mixed. I felt mixed too on this. It's interesting. Like I, something I wonder too is I was going to ask you this question. Like a twisty show like this, do you think it works better to be able to stream the whole thing, or does it work better week by week? Because this feels like it's somewhere in between, yeah. doesn't it? Like, it's, yeah. I'm not sure it has some momentum for week by week. Maybe it, you just got to sink into the streaming trance yeah. and watch it. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I will not be doing that because I'm I'm a provisional out on this. I feel like. This, I mean, this to me is a bit like a steampunk Lost. Yes. And I feel like, remember our friend Dave um, said that in the later seasons of Lost, he just read Wikipedia summaries. I feel <laughs> yeah. like I bring it up a lot in the podcast, but it, it really stuck with me. I feel like this is a bit like that. Like, I'm mm. kind of curious what happens. I'm curious to kind of join the dots between the posters and the series, but maybe not quite curious enough to, to actually, sit through wa- it all. To actually yeah. watch it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think there's, there's definitely things to be enjoyed by this. Mm. And the high concept premise, I think, is fairly well executed. Mm. But in terms of that human interest that really sucks mm. me into a show, mm. not so present here. No, it's like there's narrative brilliance, but not a really engaging sense of narrative play. Mm. It's like watching a demonstration. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm 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 an out. Like if I, I'm interested in what happens, but yeah, I'm I'm probably an out in terms of watching it. All right, on to our next series. Now, this one is streaming on Disney mm. in Australia, which is really in Congress because it's called Welcome to Chippendales and it's mm. about male strippers. Mm. So, you know, quite jarring with, uh, against the Disney brand, that I, one. When I was looking where this was streaming, I was not expecting Disney Plus <laughs> to be the platform. Uh, so this is an American biographical drama. Uh, it's, a, it's a miniseries, so it's a self-contained miniseries. Uh, it was created by Robert Siegel and inspired by a book called Deadly Dance, The Chippendale Murders mm. by K. Scott McDonald and Patrick Montez de Oca. Mm. Uh, it stars Kumail Nanjiani, mm. uh, who's probably most famous for The Big Sick mm. and, Sil- uh, Silicon, and, Valley. and Silicon Valley. Yeah. As, and he plays a character called Soman Steve Banerjee, who's the founder of the Chippendales mm. male dancing group. But at the beginning of this pilot, we see him as a slightly down in his luck gas station a manager mm. who has big dreams, American dreams mm. of social upward mobility. Mm. Uh, also, you know, he emulates his hero or to emulate his hero, Hugh Hefner, and become fully, um, you know, integrated into American culture at large. So in this pilot episode, we follow his progression from, uh, you know, this, this put-upon manager who has saved 90% of his income create a little nest egg that he uses you know, to make a big entrepreneurial splash and create an open, what, what initially starts out as a backgammon club. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when this is less than successful, he enlists the help of a, a sort of self-promoting uh, nightclub promoter called Paul... Forget, forget. <laughs> Paul something. Paul someone. Paul Snyder. Paul Snyder, Paul my Snyder. apologies. Paul Snyder, who has a very beautiful girlfriend. Uh, and they effectively 
collectively come up with an idea of livening the, the, the place by appealing to the newly liberated female audience. And what, what, I can't recall. What year is it set in? Is it early 80s? It would be set in the, in the early 80s. Early 80s, yes. yep. Yeah. So, and they, they decide, right, that there's a niche. You know, cause it's set in LA um, very atmospherically and they decide there's a niche for male strip clubs for straight women. Yes. It's an untapped market. Yes. It's worth worth saying to, I think you might have said actually, that he his idol is Hugh Hefner. Yes. So this is his way of approximating the Hugh Hefner lifestyle. Yes. And at the point where they actually decide to dress up the strippers in Playboy Bunny style. So it's his version of the Hugh Hefner project. Yes. Yep. Yes, exactly. So uh, this series prom- promises to really trace the whole mm. uh, journey and trajectory of the Chippendales and, by extension, Steve Banerjee from a relatively successful nightclub promoter to being charged with accessory to murder, mm. you know, obviously by the I, end of the series. So I, I don't know anything about know this nothing. story. So it's worth saying, I mean, this, this is a spoiler, but mm. it's part of the pilot. At the end of the pilot, after the first really successful night at Chippendales, probably also worth mentioning that he hires a Emmy award-winning choreographer, choreographer played yeah. by our favourite Murray Bartlett. Yes. Um, is that his name, Murray Bartlett? From yes. From White Lotus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He hires a choreographer to snazz, like jazz up the show, make it snazzy. Mm. And after the first really successful night of the Chippendale show, we cut to Paul. I think it's Paul. Paul Snyder, yes. Paul and his girlfriend both yeah. murdered, although yeah. it's not clear how. So I, I have no idea oh, okay. so you about don't know, the true crime. You don't know much element. about this angle? At, Nothing at, at all. all. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen a movie called Star 80? No, I haven't. Okay. I haven't so heard Star, of 80, Star 80 is a, is a Bob Fosse movie made in the oh, early 1980s right. about yes. this very case, about right. Paul Snyder and his girlfriend, Dorothy Stratton. And this is a very of famous course. case of yes. um, murder-suicide. Yes. Uh, so when this... So Snyder did it, Yeah. Right? Yep. So when this when this um, this character, Paul Snyder and Dorothy Stratton, came on, came on board, I thought, oh, I know this story. Mm. You know, I've seen Star 80. Yep. So to have that, that whole story, which is the whole plot of Star 80, just condensed into this pilot episode... I was quite shocked and and somewhat pleasantly surprised, given there was there was much more narrative heft to this. So does Star Eighty deal with the Chippendale stuff as no, well? Oh, very tangentially, Briefly. but it's more about their relationship and his insane jealousy and Dorothy Stratton's emerging Hollywood career right. as a playboy centerfold, who later um, started to be um, you know courted for Hollywood movies. So this and is her, almost yeah the opposite. It's taking starting with Chippendales and folding them into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is such. It is such a 80s and 90s phenomenon, that male stripper mm. scene. Like, I remember Chippendales wasn't a big thing in Australia, but I remember the Australian, like, English Commonwealth version was Manpower. Yes. I remember one of uh, a gay guy and you told me what may be the most Australian ever realising your gay story. He lived, like, in the country, there was no one gay around, and he saw that Manpower was on TV one night, mm. without knowing quite why or knowing he was gay, he got up in the night, taped it on a VHS recorder just so he could have it. Right. It's like that, that to me is like a quintessential 90s Australian outback coming out story. Right, right. Well, so, this, this club is women only, and that, so that sort of enjoyment would, would be, by its very nature, prohibited. And that's something that's interesting about the show, right? Because I feel like the early 80s is a time when, you know, just generally bodies are being commodified, streamlined more, mm. stuff like the rise mm. of MTV, mm. new kind of mass media. And it's, it's a time when the male body is being turned into a spectacle in a completely new way for mm. men. But at the same time, that the kind of homoerotic element has to be repressed. Yeah. So you think of something like, well, there's, there's a newfound sense of the male body as spectacle. Yeah. But at the same time, the homoeroticism has to be repressed. So, mm. you, look, action cinema is mm. a, com- a clear example. And steroidal, hypermasculine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but also stuff like, say, hair metal, where you have these mm. extravagant male bodies that are getting ever closer to effeminacy mm. or to being, you know, objectified in the same way as female bodies, but it's paired with these ultra masculine lyrics that mm. almost become self parody. Mm. So, I feel like there's something about that going on here, this this new sense of the male body as a spectacle and the kind of anxiety and negotiation that causes. So the Kamal Nunjiani character gets the idea at a gay club. Mm. He goes to a, a gay club with Paul and Paul's completely comfortable there and Kamal Nunjiani is not comfortable until he sees this kind of gyrating dancer and realises that he can monetize it. Mm. And then his anxiety goes and it becomes another business venture. Mm. So it's just that's... That's a really big part of it. And the murder-suicide thing with Paul Snyder seems like a part of that. So he's somebody who ultimately can't cope with this new array of bodies. It, mm. it, it 
you know, unleashes a jealousy and anxiety, a self-destructive quality in him. Mm. So, mm. It's, yeah, it's interesting. But that that's a big part of it, isn't it? The idea that these part of that genre of male strip shows in the 80s and 90s was women only. Mm. This is mm. this can't be permitted to service any other kind of clientele. Yeah. I think this is also interesting because it's it's an immigrant story. I agree. And he finds, uh, you know, Steve Banerjee finds this market niche mm. that is probably no one's capitalised on because of this fear of being, mm. you know, outed as, as homosexual. Mm. And just because he has this slightly awry immigrant gaze mm. um, and uh, kind of, do anything to, to get ahead mm. uh, mentality. He's able to defy those those stereotypes. Well, it also feels a little bit like it's almost his version of passing for white too. Mm. So in the opening scene is this great scene with him in the petrol station and a couple of white jocks come in and basically trash the place and throw beer on him and it's it's an image of the immigrant immigrant man, immigrant Indian just completely emasculated by white jocks. Yeah. And it's almost like he's at a kind of unconscious level. The Chippendales thing is a way of him resting back that masculinity. Yeah. So when he sees the, you know, white guy dancing on the pole at the gay club, there is there's an aha business moment, but also a deeper aha moment where he's like that's that's the kind of white masculinity I'm looking for. I can bottle it and I can be in control of it. Mm. So mm. Yeah, like throughout the film, there are, sorry, the pilot, there are just moments like that where it feels like, I guess, you know, if you're a guy immigrating to any country, whatever the main, the norm of masculinity is, mm. is going to make you feel like an outsider. Mm. And this is kind of his way of dealing with it. Unconsciously, he packages it and sells it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that mm. great scene where he said, oh, uh, one of the characters, the choreographer says, can I speak to your manager? Yeah, exactly. And he says, I am the manager. Exactly. And <laughs> on that note too, something I thought was good about this is like, I thought it showed what a good actor Kamal Nunjiani yeah. is because he has he has such a distinct comic persona. He does. And it's so good mm. and it's so supple. You know, it's like so, there's so much in it. Mm. Maybe supple's not the right word. It's so, like there's so much in it, you know what I'm trying to say? Like mm. it's so rich mm. that he could basically riff on that any film he's in. Mm. Whereas here he seems to consciously pull it back a bit yeah. and leave some of the comedy out and actually go for a bit more of a dramatic or dr- dramatic mm. approach. So mm. it's... It, it's a show where he could easily mug for the camera using his regular persona, which is great. But there's, it shows a different kind of range. Yeah, and he's he's not really overtly comic at all in this. No, in this series, but the like a lot twinkle of twinkle in the eye. Yeah, like a lot of I think comedians who become dramatic actors. Mm. There's that resonant. There's that res, residual kind mm. of resonances from his comic roles. Mm. It's that you just you, there's always a latent, yes. a latency to that sort of performance and there's, there's a there's a there's a wryness and I feel, I feel like the series has that same thing right even in the way it's constructed so on the one hand there's this real like okay kind of it's about at some level an anxiety or a moment where it's like okay we can we can put men on display but not for other men mm. and yet the inverted commas straight choreographer you know who's got a wife who ends up doing it is Murray Bartlett mm. who's an out gay actor who's known for playing arguably the best role in the white lotus mm. the first song they dance to is village people macho man mm. so there is this wry undercurrent throughout the whole series mm. that i think is is really is really deft like it'd be it'd be so easy for this series to be one of two things like it could easily be you know a self a self-righteous you know yes sexual liberation is good you know this was a moment of you know of important identity politics it could be quite self-righteous but it could also just be snarky mm. and condescending towards this moment as well. Yeah. And it's just there's it kind of embraces the campness of it. Even in its very style, like there's something a bit off the cuff about the show. The opening scenes particularly are very expository in a kind of off the cuff way. But it just it leans into the absurdity of the Chippendales brand mm. without condescending to it. Yeah, it works. I think it really yeah. works. It's entertaining. Yeah, it's it's a very entertaining. It's it's quite deft, light on, light on its feet. Mm. Um, even though you know we we encounter some pretty tragic incidents in this, mm. there's a there's a fleetness of foot to this series. I think like just one scene that really works capturing that weird space between gay and straight gazes is is a great scene about midway through where Commander Gianni and um, the Snyder character go down to Venice Beach, like the Muscle Beach. And are basically cruising guys to be in the strip club. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look, you've got a great body. Do you want to come and be in my strip club for women? <laughs> and they get these weird looks. But it just it just captures yeah. it captures something else I just um, remember too is that I think he comes up with, I, I didn't quite catch this, but he comes up with the idea of the name Chippendales because 
it provided the Chippendale was a famous furniture brand that provided cabinets for the viceroy in the British Empire yes, in India. Yeah, so like famous manufacturer who for, who did that artisan for who, British, but for British India. Yes, yeah, so, so British India. Yeah. So there's this kind of the name has this colonial lineage that again captures this sense of passing for white or yeah. or, or the message as well. This. You might think I'm an immigrant to America, but I'm actually an immigrant from the British Empire. Yes, <laughs> it just it just captures that well. So I thought it was really good. Yeah, it was it, like, it's, it's it's a casual watch. Yeah, it's it's a very entertaining, mm. light, you know, easy watch. Mm. Um, that yeah, look, I'm I'm a provisional in for this. Yeah, same, I, like a casual in. Yeah, it's one of the shows like it's not an urgent watch, but I'm kind of keen to come back to. Yeah, just in a in an off the cuff way. Yeah, yeah, it's good. All right, on to our next series. Now, our next series is Echo 3, which is currently streaming on Apple TV Plus and is an Apple TV Plus exclusive. It premiered on November 23rd this year and comes from two-time Academy Award winner Mark Boll, mm. most famous for being a journalist turned screenwriter mm. and his uh, pairings, creative pairings with Catherine Bigelow. Yes, he wrote The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker and, and Zero, Dark Zero Dark 30. 30. Yep. Yeah, so two of my uh, favourite recent films They're amazing yeah so uh, this series is a black ops thriller uh, it's largely set in Colombia and it's in fact filmed almost entirely on location in Colombia and uh, it's actually based on an Israeli television series called When Heroes Fly which was inspired by a non-fiction novel of the mm. same of the same name so in this uh, the premise of this is probably just not just to interject it's probably worth saying that I think the show's going to be set mainly in Colombia, but this pilot jumps around a lot. Yeah. Like it's set in the United States and it's set in Afghanistan and it's set in Colombia again. It, mm. it, it jumps. Just an opening impression, like you said, with 1899, you weren't sure what genre it was going to be or where it was going to go. I found this completely confounding in right. a lot of ways. Not, not in a bad way necessarily, but anyway, I'm interested to hear what you think of it. Mm. Mm. So just a bit of background to the plot. Um, our, one of our main characters is called Amber Ches- Chesborough. She's an American scientist who's reaching the psychedelic properties of organic uh, plants in, in the remote uh, Colombian rainforest to try to uh, devise ways of treating addictions to opioids and so forth. Uh, she's, we later discovered, kidnapped by militants at the end of this pilot. Um, so this provokes her, her brother, Bambi, and her husband Prince, who are both uh, Army Delta Force operators, to Bambi rescue Prince. her. <laughs> yeah. So at the beginning, we were introduced to these characters through a, uh, a very elaborate wedding sequence mm. uh, between Prince and and Amber, which is interspersed with uh, a flashback to their time in Afghanistan. Now, obviously, the timeline is a little bit murky here. Is, is that a flashback? Isn't or that is what it happens? A flash forward. Because <laughs> my understanding is that because we have that prelude in Colombia. My understanding is that we have the prelude in Colombia, then we have the marriage, then the the men fly out the next morning for Afghanistan, um, and there's a complication in Afghanistan. Then they come back and they're estranged. Then she goes to Colombia and they go and find her. Yes, okay, yes, of but course. But it, it, it is murky. Yeah. It is murky to follow. Like It's like a series that restarts about three or four times. Yes. The plot. Yes, yeah. yes. It's quite a fractured narrative Very, at the yeah. beginning. And the framing device is obviously... Uh, Amber being kidnapped in Colombia, so that's mm. that's the key, the key sort of narrative that strand that we're we're following, um, and the little uh, little incident in in Afghanistan is obviously designed to to uh, I guess foreshadow these characters' rift, emotional rift, which mm. obviously needs to be needs to be healed when they're returned to to Colombia. So, what did you think? So, I think for me, this was. In some ways, the most interesting show this week, partly because it was the most confounding. So I, mm. I, I knew nothing going in about this. Mm. And this to me was a show that until the very end, I couldn't quite figure out what the tone was meant to be or even what the subject matter or the focus was meant to be. And I know you shouldn't look at shows in this way, but whether it was quality or non-quality. <laughs> so, you know, it's got, it's got, and I mean that less as an evaluative thing than as an aesthetic thing. Like it has the trappings of... I mean, it's very beautifully mm. shot. It's incredibly languorous. Yeah. It has... Well, it's an Apple TV series, so we assume it's going for quality. High production yeah, values. Yeah, high production values, big name creator showrunner in yeah. Mark Boll. So it has... And all... some big name actors in Luke Evans. Yes, so it has all that. But at the same time, it's got a kind of pot boiler approach. Um, 
Yeah, it's very oblique and like it's quite random. So stuff happens, like all of a sudden you find out she's a psychopharmacologist. <laughs> all of a sudden she's into shamanism. All of a sudden she's abducted. Like it's it's really, it's really fractured. The best way to describe it, I think, is I mean her, her like her interest, like her basic thesis, because she has a TED talk later in the episode, mm, is that. Yeah. The only, like, the basic backstory is her and her brother grew up with a, a mother who was a drug addict. Mm. And she thinks, she's a, you know, as a psychopharmacologist, she thinks the only way to treat addiction is through psychedelics. Mm. Um, and so she's journeying to the rainforest to investigate that. But she talks a lot about microdosing. And I, I feel like the series feels microdosed. Mm. Like, it's got this dissociative, blissed out style, which, which makes it feel like it's starting over and over again. Mm. In, remember in The Undoing, I think this is becoming a bit more of a thing, there were those weird shots where parts of the frame would be in focus and parts weren't, mm. but not in a particularly, like not in a clear cut way, just as if as if there's like a moat on the eye of the camera. Mm. This is like that, but it's like both visually and narratively, the focus is very hard to glean. Mm. Um, well, it, has, it, has some seri- it has some long scenes that are just jarringly interspersed by other scenes in different locations yes. with different lighting yes. with uh, different characters uh, almost different aesthetic and it I found myself revising my expectations I went through for mm. that reason so at the beginning you have this wedding I can't remember the name but we have the main character what's the main character? Amber Amber her husband and her brother basically yeah Bambi Bambi Prince is Prince the brother? Prince is Prince the, the husband. husband okay so we have this scene at the beginning where you know she's marrying Prince um She's got a brother there as well. She's got Bambi there as well. And it's, you know, then, and they're both, what, SEALs? What's the yeah, army? Delta Force. Yeah, Delta Force. And we find out that they're heading off the next morning, you know, in eight hours' time. So the stage is set for a kind of a really generic GI, GI's wife melodrama. Yeah. So I thought, okay, that's what this is. And yet the result turns out to be quite different. Like instead of either of the men dying, they actually let someone else die. Mm. They Neither of them wants to take responsibility for it. They're estranged when they return. There's some scenes of them arguing when they return. And then they have to team up, team up to find her yeah. when she goes missing. So it took what initially seemed like a, a wartime melodrama, mm. a war like a you know, G.I.G.I. or F melodrama, and actually did something really original with it. And, and similarly, like that second scene, like in Afghanistan where their mate dies, at first, I thought, oh, this is really, this is kind of confusing. It's a bit kind of turgid. Like, where is this going? There's no stakes yet. Mm. And yet it turns out that precisely what is at stake is their differing versions of what happened, mm. and which leads to their refusal to take responsibility. So that I kind of revised as well and thought that kind of worked. So mm. it was like, it was kind of emergent, mm. the mm. show. And I, mm. I, the, the twist was, was very unexpected as well, the narrative with, twist. That she is a scientist and something more. Well, that was another random thing. We can yeah. probably say it looks like, yeah. oh, she's a psychopharmacologist. Oh, she's into shamanism. Oh, she's been working for the you know CIA for twenty <laughs> years. Like it just yeah. it just brings in this stuff. Yeah, it was weird. It was like it ebbed and flowed, mm. and the ebbs could get pretty slow, but then the flows were good. Yeah, that's true. I, I didn't. I have to say, I didn't really know what to make of it. It yeah. was it was curious. Yeah, there there are yeah. the seeds of an of a really awesome uh, yes, uh, you know, series here. Mm. There are definitely. Seeds. I, mean, I think the action sequences are really fantastic. Yes. Including in Afghanistan and Colombia. There's a genuine sense of terror, mm. uh, disorientation, uh, you know, the fog of war in both of those sequences. Mm. Uh, I we, think that the on, like the, the basically shooting on, on site is fantastic. That's a real sense of verisimilitude, this series. Yeah. Uh, I think the human interest is a little bit turgid <laughs> at yeah, times. And a bit dare I say it, a bit basic. Yeah. Like the characterization is a bit... Ba- I mean, it's kind of like... It's like if... These are both good films on their own terms, obviously, but it's kind of like if American Sniper met Zero Dark Thirty. Yes. <laughs> Don't you think? You have that You have that Eastwood kind of melodrama, Soldier, Soldier's Wife, which yeah. which really works in American Sniper. Yes. That's not a criticism of that film. But meeting the handheld kinetics of Catherine Bigelow. Yes. And... That latter, that latter part, that latter aspect, I thought was great, yeah. and I thought if this if this just hones in now yes. that now that it's established the pieces and the stakes, yep. if that just hones into this pure procedural, yes. you know, kinetic action thriller, this is going to be awesome. I, if I, it does the opposite and keeps cutting in our timelines and focusing on the marital yes. melodrama, then it's going to really lose its its momentum. I feel like I feel like I kind of get where you're coming from. But weirdly, 
I found the messiness of it kind of compelling. <laughs> so I, I like I like those action scenes. I thought they were great, but there was just something about how strangely put together this was. At times, maybe a bit ineptly put together. That just I don't know. I found it. It was like remember. Um, we saw years ago that Russell Crowe film was at the next five days or whatever it's called. Oh, about him trying to get his wife out yeah. of prison in Pittsburgh or something. Yeah, and we just yeah. happened. I mean, it's a bit rare. It sounds like a bit of a douchey thing to say, but it's a bit rare for us to go into a film not knowing what it's about. Yeah, we're big film people. True, and it was also just tra- we hadn't watched any trailer. It was like Barbarian. I yeah. had experienced Barbarian the same way recently. Yeah. I remember it, it was so revelatory to see a show knowing nothing about it. Mm. I knew almost nothing about this, so maybe that's part of where I'm coming from. But I just. Mm. It's unusual of, to be surprised. Yeah. It's unusual to be surprised yeah. by a narrative. Confounded. Yeah. Yeah. So I liked the action sequences, but I also liked, I liked, I don't want to quite call it messiness. I liked the dissociative micro, micro-dosed mm. aspect of it. It mm. kept me, and like I said, there, there was that, that marital melodrama stuff seemed a bit basic at first, but then it went in different directions. Mm. I thought it could have been, the series could easily have been a little bit self-important. Like there's a lot of beard and chin energy here. <laughs> but then that, like when the two blokes come back and they're, they're fighting, that really worked too. I don't know. Like it's, there were times when I was watching and I was like, what is this? <laughs> it's it's strange. Then, it's a very long pilot too. It's yeah, over an hour long. Yeah, it, it it's feels, almost feature length. And it, it feels long. Not because it's bad, but because there's so much in it. Yes. And it's 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 so it's like in four or five acts. Mm. I don't know. I'm I'm it's like it reminds me of what David Lynch said about another season of Twin Peaks. It's like it's calling to me, but there are disturbances. <laughs> That's how I feel about yeah. this. I'm I'm compelled. Yeah. It's got it's obviously got very grand ambitions given mm. the whole CIA subplot brings in, you know, a very a much larger geopolitical mm. dimension to this. Mm. So it's its aspirations are more towards um, zero Dark Thirty than they are the Hurt Locker. Yeah, and it's like at the end, it's like it just, it, yeah, as you said, it gets massive because the brother and Prince and Bambi, you know, Bambi reveals to Prince that she's been involved with the CIA and the immediate um, response is, well, can we trust them to get her out? No, so we'll take a helicopter to South America. <laughs> like, it just, the layers just keep on coming on and coming yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're going to be uncharitable, you could say that it, it's sub-Bigelow in some respects, but... It's strange enough that I think it kind of it feels works. like a series that she might have yes, directed she might or have been involved in or produced least. maybe yeah yeah or maybe even executive produced it feels like something that would have her imprimatur yes. on it yes so am I in I I don't know have a, so the next episode so the yes. first episode's called Fly Away the next episode I think is so evocative we yep. talk Tora Bora in the city yeah that's <laughs> yes, good Chef's that's Kiss good. that's good um, <laughs> that title alone you know going into the intrigue of colombian internal politics uh. you know u.s geopolitics you know the uh the ins and outs procedurally of this this delta ops you know um mm. surgical evacuation team and just i just the characters too like at first i was like oh you know you know noble husband loyal brother she's going to be the tra- you know, tragic widow or lose up by this you know it's not very interesting or it's, it's bald characterization but the way it's changed are these two guys who you know, have a disagreeing version of what happened on the front, chasing her down, finding finding her while she tries to escape. I just inverted it all in a way that I find kind of interesting. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised. I thought this series might be a bit on the nose for you, given those very broad, yeah. masculine characters. and Yeah. I mean, just one way of putting it, the, who's the guy who plays um, Prince? He's from Game of Thrones. Yeah, he's he's also yeah. in um. Oh no, sorry, he's the guy who plays Bambi. Um, oh, that's uh, that is. Uh, my name's name is the Luke, just, Ev- Luke. Yeah, Luke Evans. He's, Luke Evans. He's, yeah. he's he's gay, right? In real life, he like, is. And he he's is. one of those guys who's always like, I don't fully identify with any particular. Like he's like he's not like he's not stereotypical. People often comment on how he doesn't fit the stereotypes. No. And there's just something about again about him here that sends it awry. I don't know. It's like a weird mixture of like melodrama plus genuine plot twistiness plus as you said bigelow-esque action it's weird yeah and i yeah i don't know i think i, I feel th- like i still have no sense of what the show's gonna yeah. be from i feel an hour-long pilot. i feel however you feel about this series this is one of those moments where you're like isn't it great to live in this time yeah yeah because here we have apple tv obviously giving mark bowl mm. um you know who i think has a very interesting take on the world yeah i mean um, you're, you're a big bowl fan i am, I am bowl all fan, about bowl bowl fan all from about way bowl. back um they're basically giving him carte blanche mm. to direct you know a 10 episode 
series, mm. high budget, in location, Colombia. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, it's pretty unheard of in terms of the history of, you know, mm. Hollywood artistic production mm. to give someone so much free reign. I'm thinking like... To if, do something that's ostensibly a very niche project. Mm. And it has, yeah, I, I agree. Like it's it's intriguing. I mean, yeah. Apple Apple TV Plus is you know like they say you know several billion dollar boondoggle yeah, yeah. for Tim Cook, and this feels like an extension yes. of that. Yes. Yeah. Look, I'm I'm intrigued. I, I don't know. I'm certainly curious to watch one more episode. Yeah. To see where it goes. Maybe it could become a show that we watch after the podcast at some point. Like, potentially. Potentially. It's um, it's interesting enough to, to warrant, I think, a few more episodes. Also, one final thing before we move on. What's the title? Where does the title come from? Is it explained? Yeah, that's that's a really good one. I couldn't... I just realised... I mean, but this is the nature of the show. I've only just realised I don't know what the title means. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like I was even watching yeah. thinking, what does it mean? Just, is, is it the name of the team or is it is it a code word that they use on the, on the, uh, on the, the radio... Transponder isn't it, is it an allusion to the three of them to the yeah. brother the husband the wife yeah yeah but even that fact that it's only now a day after watching the show that I've actually thought to think what the name means captures <laughs> something about the just the weird temporality of it all um, yeah look I'm I'm a provisional I don't know yeah. I don't know I'm I'm curious yeah it's very it's one of the strangest shows we've done in yeah. a while I, like, I, like I'm, a lot com- of, I'm compelled yeah like a lot of Apple TV series like amazing production values great. Great mm. ideas. Um, not sure about the execution, mm. but it's so beautiful to look at and so yeah. you know indulgent. Yeah, yeah. In, in a way that Apple would commission something like this, yes. that you feel like it's an act of good faith to watch it. To watch it, yeah. I think you've convinced me. I'm, I'm going to watch at least one more episode. <laughs> Tora Bora in the city, it is. Tora Bora in the city. Okay, on to our archive corner for this week. I'm Alan Partridge. Yes. Um, so this is the second Alan Partridge series. Oh, the second is yeah. Okay. So by all accounts, the best. He started off in a show called Knowing Me, Knowing You with okay. Alan Partridge, um, where he was a successful radio host. But I'm Alan Partridge is the decline. Oh, so it right. was released in two seasons, only six episodes each. So it's like Faulty Towers, only twelve episodes. Released interestingly five years apart. So season oh. one was nineteen ninety seven. Season two was two thousand and two. And we open with Alan Partridge relegated to the graveyard shift, a Norwich radio station, <laughs> living in a hotel, divorced <laughs> from his wife, desperate to get back with the BBC. Yeah. And the show ends with him, the pilot ends with him having an interview with the head of BBC. Um, and just basically this is setting the scene. We see him at work, then we see him at the hotel, interacting with the receptionists and the other staff, dealing with his long-term, like long-term long-suffering assistant, Lynn. Is obviously a, a highlight here, and then having this interview with the head of the BBC, which doesn't go well. Mm. Um, I have not laughed as much as I have in this for a long time. Yeah, it like was I, good. I just laughed. It's good out loud, st- like start to finish. I mean, I, I feel yeah. like this is as great a creation as David Brent in the office. Yes. I think. Well, it's, it's so it's so adjacent to David Brent. In terms of the timeline, was this did this predate David Brent? Yeah, and this is something post-date? this is something that's interesting. So it's nineteen ninety seven. So I feel like watching this, it feels like a transition point between traditional sitcoms and the handheld single cam mm. workplace comedy of the office, right? Mm. So I was I was curious and I was reading into the production and all the interior scenes were shot on sets with a live audience. So right. traditional sitcom. But all the external scenes are just kind of shot on location. Oh, so it's that real okay. So one of the things I found unusual about this show is that the laugh, you know, I love sitcoms, I love canned laughter, but the laughter feels a bit obtrusive here. Just the because, laugh track does not work. No, we're almost in that office mode. Yeah, it's a transition. So we're almost in that handheld, yeah, it's a little mockumentary too, mode. It's a little too emphatic. Yeah, and the laughs, the big laughs are at the wrong places. I agree. So it's the big laughs are at the, the obvious places, but the the more oblique, more controversial yeah, spots, there's no yeah. laughter at all. It just the. The stuff I find myself laughing at is, you know, those big moments are funny, but just Alan's mannerisms, like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> I, what did you think? I mean, I just, I love this pilot. Well, I it's interesting it was so that, funny. that there are obviously two Alan Partridges, the first, yes. the successful, uh, you know, studio host. Yep. And then this one, the the provincial, pompous, down yep. his luck mm. uh, DJ. And this is the one that really resonated with audiences. Yep. It makes you know, absolute sense that this is the this is the version of Alan Partridge that, mm. that people wanted and people loved and yep. that was obviously uh, revived more recently in yep. Alan Partridge Alpha Papa. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Was there anything in between Alan Partridge season two and That's Alpha Papa? That's a good Papa? question. I think there might be one more series. Okay. But it's pretty like... It's an enduring character. Yeah, and it's pretty, um, what's the word, like 
intertextual. Like there's like he started off as a guest in a radio program. He was initially a radio character, right? And then he was a TV character in a in a kind of anthology program. So he's made various appearances okay. across the years. It's funny just watching because we know we're both big fans of the trip, mm. and it's funny watching this having seen the trip because they're you know it's not straight Coogan, but it's Coogan playing a version of himself. Yeah, and yeah, or is Coogan playing Alan Partridge in the or trip? Or playing, <laughs> the two feel the same, right? Yeah, like it, yeah. you have such a strong sense. There's clearly overlap between yeah. his persona and the Alan Partridge persona too. Yeah, well, exactly. You feel like yeah. it's a version of him. Yeah, I think the the, the, the crossover in the Venn diagram is the pomposity. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the al- self-regarding. And, and also something too, like it reminds me, like I feel like Alan is like a social media poster before his time, right? Like he's, it's funny to think back, like we're so used now to people opining on yeah. social media. So remember there's a great, there's a great Ricky Gervais stand-up bit where he's talking about, you know, Facebook, early days of Facebook. And he says, oh, I went onto a mate's page and he's like, here's my top 10 Cure albums. Thanks very much. <laughs> so like, you know, we live in an age where like offering our opinions and our tastes about everything has just become commonplace. Mm. Like I have an Instagram account, Facebook account, Twitter account. It's just me talking about what I like and what mm. I think. But before social media, that was less common mm. or just less socially acceptable. True. So I feel like... True. Alan, oh, you just didn't have a platform for doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I feel like wherever he goes, Alan's always offering these little nuggets of wisdom. Yes. Like these little observations about taste or about the world. True. But he's got no platform to post them on. True. He's and desperately in search of a platform. Desperately. And, <laughs> and Yeah. And I think that part of his comic signature is like trying to be pithy. Yes. Like trying to have these... Trying to be aphoristic. Yes. Trying to get these little sound bites at work. But they don't quite pull off. No, that's like they true. They don't quite come off. That's so true. It's, yeah. it's like a failed Oscar Wilde. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or somebody who's trying to tweet in the present or trying to put up a great update in the present or trying to come up with a hot take. Mm. But it just doesn't land. Yes. Even on his radio platform, he's constantly thwarted <laughs> yeah. in his takes. I mean, he's, he's really condescended to by the breakfast, the <laughs> breakfast host. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and his interviews with, you know, minor celebrities are... Are obviously take the spotlight off him, yep. and you know obviously he has to play music, yep. uh, which is a, I think a little bit resentful of, given he really wants to be the the center of attention, but also exclusive like focus. Something about his music and taste making too. Like I, I like I remember when we were at high school, just because you only you could only afford so many CDs, your kind of knowledge of music was pretty limited. Mm. But like in the age of social media and online streaming, everyone's got a canon of taste. Everyone's mm. got a hot take. There's something about the way in which he flicks between musical references mm. that reminds me of that as well. Like he, he reminds me a bit of me when I was first on Facebook in 2007, like sharing, you know, a Bob Dylan song like no one else had ever heard it before. <laughs> that, kind, that kind of vibe. And yeah, just pithy. It's like he's always going for something really pithy, but it just doesn't, you can't make it. Mm. Mm. But yeah, really much like that, like that Ricky Gervais thing. I'm a top ten Cure album. Thanks very much. I mean, that, yeah. that's so normal now. Yeah, but I remember true. back then it was like yeah, opining. True. <laughs> yeah. Another great aspect of this, I think, which is shared with I think a lot of the great British comedies, is the provincialism. Yes. The small mindedness, yes. the very narrow horizons. Yes. Uh, so obviously, The Office in Slough and Faulty Towers with you know Torquay, uh, Torquay, Torquay, and here. Norwich. Norwich. And then he goes to Norfolk, I believe, in I think later so, yeah. ones. So they've got a real sense of kind of the quaintness, the provincialism. I, I don't know. The, is Norwich, the, I don't know much about Norwich, but the way it's described here, it's like it's the ends of the earth. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's been exiled. He's living in exile. Yeah. He's desperate to, you know, reclaim the spotlight, yeah, to yeah. return to the centre of things in London. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a great sense here of, um, of, yeah, being a kind of, you know, at exile, being decentered yeah, from yeah. your own life, including the, the the weird vacancy of living in a hotel. Yes, <laughs> yeah. There's that great bit at the end where he um he talks about oh you know my what does he say like my wife can go home to a to her lover who you know is like a gym instructor, but I can order a, an Irish coffee an at three a.m. <laughs> tries to order and they're like oh no can I order a Fanta no. <laughs> there's so many and it's funny isn't it like what you said about the different types of jokes is really true because you have the broader jokes of you know like old sitcoms then you have these little moments these little nuances of character that are just so much more like the office so mm. i love that receptionist whatever he says anything she just can't stop laughing at him and has to has to leave the desk yeah just little touches like that yeah just little micro nuances of character that are so well drawn yeah yeah he's a he's a terrific terrific character he's always talking and at people yes yes <laughs> like yes. it's like as a radio as a radio them. presenter he, yeah, yeah. he can't leave his radio presenter talk <laughs> no. show host behind 
um, he's always on. Yeah. He's always on and he always, he's always on in that performative way that means yeah. he actually doesn't make connections with people because he's always had to remove and he's always yeah, foregrounding yeah. his own persona at the expense of theirs. It's like even when he's alone in the room, he's rehearsing stuff on his dictaphone. Yeah. And that, that's very like social media too. Remember he's got the dictaphone he's going through a series of ideas, ideas for shows. Yeah. But they basically descend into pranks or yes. like viral content or YouTube stunts. So like wouldn't it be funny if we just did this or yes. did that. So... Yeah, it's mm. it's like, remember you said like in The Crown, it was like Charles and Diana almost feel like early influencers. I mean, he's he's like that. It's like his, everything that he does or thinks privately is on display. Mm. But instead of having Instagram or Twitter or some platform, he just has hotel staff in Norwich mm. and they, mm. have, they have to take on the burden yeah. of all this narcissistic <laughs> performance. Yeah. All, his, all his interactions, all, the, yeah. all his employees and viewees yeah. have to kind of, yeah, take on a heavy burden of interacting with yeah. him. It's exhausting. Which I think is very David Brent. Like, like yes. David Brent wants to be a performer, a yes. comedian. Yes. But and people around him have to be the audience. Definitely. Yeah. Def- they're a captive audience too in the hotel because <laughs> yeah. they're service staff. And I think there's another great feature of Alan Partridge, like David Brent, it's a combination of like enormous arrogance and self-regard yeah. and obsequiousness. Yes. Depending on... <laughs> Yes. The interaction. So there's a great there's a great sequence at the end of this where he, he orchestrates a uh, lunch with the head yes. of editorial content at the BBC and basically the this lunch has been designed to gently let Alan Partridge down mm. and let him know his sec- second season of his of mm. his uh, series has not been renewed. Uh, but he's you know this combination of you know I'll, I'm I'm better than you yeah, at the same time at the same time I really need to suck up to you to get this second season. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's a there's a strange dynamic at this at this uh, dinner party which is weirdly interspersed with these these sort of fantasy sequences yes. where he's stripping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can see there's that internal tension between yeah. you know his desperate need for approval and obviously for for the you know the green light from this guy, but also combined with his you know his very uh, very fragile sense of sense of ego it's like those stripping scenes it's like as a stripper he's performing to people but also abasing himself yes so yeah. it's like it's like yeah i wondered about those is it like his suspicion that he's really just servicing people in the same way a stripper does as a radio host as a midnight shift radio host yeah. that's or maybe he's yeah destined to be played in strip clubs and yes. as, a, as a midnight shift radio host yeah. but you're right that last scene like just the way he pivots between arrogance and obsequiousness mm. it is mm. so funny yeah so the, the comic he moves the comic yeah. register and again is is just him being his ego being punctured again and again and yeah, again. yeah yeah so you need and sometimes very very cruelly including yep. you know the graffiti on his car yeah so you need a you need a combination of someone who's very likable very yep. intrinsically likable yeah. but whose persona is very unlikable yes to to really to really enjoy that that constant sense of <laughs> subverting humiliation yeah humiliation yeah. um otherwise it could be just quite mean-spirited yep so you, you, it's a delicate balance, yes. and sometimes the office, I think, laps into that mean spiritedness. Yes, and this could too, but it's it like, just treads that line very well. It's like I know I keep coming back to that sense that, like, inside all of us, there is an aspiring influencer. Yes, however much we might want to disavow it, there's there, all of us at some level aspire to be an influencer, and it's it's like, it's like in it's like the balance of this show is to capture the pomposity that all of us are capable of. Yes, like the pomposity that lies dormant or sometimes not dormant within us all. Yeah. So it's a very and same with David Brent. Like yeah. it's a very human kind of pomposity. Like yeah. all of us, we've got a podcast. All of us like to hold forth. Yes, about some things yes. or in some way. So it just kind of captures. And all of us have had times when we've tried to hold forth and it's been punctured. Yes. So it's. Yeah, I remember at school, like giving some, we had to give a talk on some area of interest, and I, I kind of explained the filmography of Woody Allen to the teacher, and then found out that he knew all about it anyway. So like those, <laughs> those moments where we like to, yeah, you know, hold forth. Yeah, something that the Steve Coogan character, or all his yeah. personas capture well is the sense that conversation is there's a subtle power play in every yes. in every single conversation <laughs> yes. that you have. Yeah, it's about you know where people are constantly vying for superiority. Yep, uh, you know, in terms of status. Yep. And this, and that's obviously a common, you know, refrain yeah. in British comedy. That sense of, you know, class-based that's, inferiority. That's a nice way to put. Yeah, it's like talking to at always some, at some level is talking at yes. or talking down to or yeah. up to. Yes. But you're right. I mean, that's a really nice way to put it. It's like that that class preoccupation that does percolate throughout British comedy. It's embedded here in the conversation. In the conversation, the power play, conversation. That's power really play, nice. Just yeah. in, in micro version, condensed and, microcosm, and hence. Yeah. The kind of those strange interactions he has with service staff, yes, or the way in which he has to reduce everyone to service staff, but also has to kind of impress them with his intellect as yes. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. No, this this was genuinely, genuinely funny. I just laugh laugh, out, laughed laugh out loud all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a hard in. Me too. I, I think we should even watch it again <laughs> after the pod. I just yeah, it's great. 
Yeah. It's funny because remember our friend Dave. Um, I was told the other day I always introduced Dave as my friend Dave instead of just Dave. Let's yeah. just say Dave. Um, Dave got massively into Alan Partridge, remember, about 10 years ago. And I watched some of it with him, but I never watched it systematically. Mm. So I really want to just get into it mm. and watch it all. Um, yeah. What, what's your what's your archive choice for next week? Moving well, on. well, where, where are we there, was, there were a couple of things that, yep. I, was, that I was flipping you were, you through. You were chewing, chewing over. Considering, yep. considering. Chewing the cud. Chewing the cud. If you will. Yep. I thought I'd do a series that... I've received several recommendations uh, about uh, from weirdly disparate people. Okay. The series is Dope Sick. Interesting, on, yeah. On Disney. Okay, right. So I've heard it's... I've yeah, heard. I know it's based on a uh, non-fiction mm. uh, novel and obviously about the opioid epidemic and the Sackler Farmer family. Um, it's it looks, it looks intriguing. That's interesting. I think maybe you read it. I read a great book a couple of years ago called American Pain. Mm. About, I think we talked about it, about the opioid, the Kentucky, Florida pill mill. Mm. Uh, it's like, it's such a fascinating area kind of generally. But yeah, that, that sounds great. That's really, that's interesting. I, I've wanted, I've wanted to learn more yeah. about it since I, I read that. One of those that. series that just slipped through the cracks over the last couple of years we didn't get around to. So yeah. we will next week. I feel like it's a bit of a trend with you with Archive Corner. You like to um, fill in stuff from the I last do. couple of years because there I is do. stuff we've missed. Um, great. Excellent. So next week we'll do Dope Sick. Um, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Parlor Club. <laughs>